Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31, uh, quite a long passage. And I'm going to be reading from the message. Um, You know, often when we read God's word, especially the Old Testament, it seems to be like a little different language to us. So it's nice that um, it's been, I guess we could call this more of a paraphrase, but still it's been modernized for us. So I hope that as we read this uh, in a more modern version today, that uh, you really grasp what God's Word is saying to us. So I start at Jeremiah 4, verse 5 through 31. Sound the alarm in Judah. Broadcast the news in Jerusalem. Say, blow the ram's horn trumpet through the land. Shout out a bullhorn bellow. Close ranks. Run for your lives to the shelters. Send up a flare, warning Zion. Not a minute to lose. Don't sit on your hands. Disasters descending from the north. I set it off. When it lands, it will shake the foundations. Invaders have pronounced like a lion from its cover, ready to rip nations to shreds, leaving your land in rack and ruin, your cities in rubble, abandoned. Dress in funeral black. Weep and wail, for God's sledgehammer anger has slammed into us head on. When this happens, God's decree, kings and princes will lose heart, priests will be baffled, and prophets stand dumbfounded. Then I said, Alas, Master God, you fed lies to this people, this Jerusalem. You assured them, All is well, don't worry at the very moment when the sword was at their throats. At that time, this people, yes, this very Jerusalem, will be told in plain words, the northern hordes are sweeping in from the desert steppes, a wind that's up to no good, a gale-force wind. I ordered this wind. I'm pronouncing my hurricane judgment on my people. Look at them. Like banks of storm clouds, racing, tumbling, their chariots, a tornado, their horses faster than eagles. Woe to us, we're done for, Jerusalem. Scrub the evil from your lives so you'll be fit for salvation. How much longer will you harbor devious and malignant designs within you? What's this, a messenger from Dan? Bad news from Ephraim's hills. Make the report public. Broadcast the news to Jerusalem. Invaders from far off are raising war cries against Judah's towns. They're all over her like a dog on a bone. And why? Because she rebelled against me. God's decree. It's the way you've lived that's brought all this on you. The bitter taste is from your evil life. That's what's piercing your heart. I'm doubled up with cramps in my belly. A poker burns in my gut. My insides are tearing me up, never a moment's peace. The ram's horn trumpet blast rings in my ears, the signal for all-out war. Disaster hard on the heels of disaster. The whole country in ruins. In one stroke, my home is destroyed. The walls flattened in the blink of an eye. How long do I have to look at the warning flares, listen to the siren of danger? What fools my people are. They have no idea who I am. 
a company of half-wits, dopes and donkeys all, experts at evil but klutzes at good. I looked at the earth. It was back to pre-Genesis chaos and emptiness. I looked at the skies and not a star to be seen. I looked at the mountains. They were trembling like aspen leaves and all the hills rocking back and forth in the wind. I looked. What's this? Not a man or woman in sight and not a bird to be seen in the skies. I looked. This can't be. Every garden and orchard shriveled up. All the towns were ghost towns and all this because of God, because of the blazing anger of God. Yes, this is God's word on the matter. The whole country will be laid waste. Still, it won't be the end of the world. The earth will mourn and the skies lament because I've given my word and won't take it back. I've decided I won't change my mind. Someone shouts, horsemen and archers, and everybody runs for cover. They hide in ditches. They climb into caves. The cities are emptied and not a person left anywhere. And you... What do you think you're up to? Dressing up in party clothes, decking yourselves out in jewelry, putting on lipstick and rouge and mascara. Your primping goes for nothing. You're not going to seduce anyone. They're out to kill you. And what's that I hear? The cry of a woman in labor? The screams of a mother giving birth to her firstborn? It's the cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, reaching out for help. Help! Oh, help me, I'm dying. The killers are on me. So far, God's word. You may be seated. Well, that is a lovely, encouraging, beautiful text on three points to happier pets. Welcome. My name's Shell. I'm the pastor here at Pilgrim and... uh, I'm delighted to be here this morning, and I'm glad you're here too. A few things before we dig into this wonderful text. Uh, You saw that video. That is available. You can go online and uh, search the Bible Project, and they have good summaries of all the books of the Bible and some beautiful art too and cartoon art. It's uh, it's actually really good to help you uh, dig into Scripture if you're struggling with that. Before I go any further, I do want to say about two weeks ago, I was asked about doing outlines again for those of you that are struggling or new to English. Um, And so I resisted that urge early on because I don't do normal full manuscripts. I don't write papers for each week for my sermons. Uh, But there is a more detailed outline that we do have. And so I am making that available. If you want to get that emailed to you ahead of time, please let me know personally uh, and uh, so we can help that. I know some of our uh, folks that are here or just got here in Canada. Um, I'm an immigrant too, but uh, the U.S., my English, they still made me take the English test. I just want you to know. Uh, I still had to do that to immigrate. And I passed it. That should, some of you that have seen some of my, when I, my editor is switched off, probably wondered about that. But yes, I did pass it. Um, but if you're interested in that, please let me know. The other thing that we didn't highlight today, we are working on our sound issues in the room, and uh, so if you're struggling with that, uh, just know that, hey, maybe that's God's tapping your shoulder to say you need to get involved with the sound part of production. Ruth is, Ruth is learning, and she's doing a great job, uh, and so we are doing more training, and we want to add to that team and Harry, and so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So, all right. 
And uh, yeah, but those two things I wanted to mention, uh, the email list for outlines, and it's not the full text, but it's enough that uh, you can at least maybe go a little deeper if you're struggling with following the speed that I talk at. So uh, we want to try to help you out a little bit there. Um, Yeah, Jeremiah. I've never done a series on Jeremiah before. This is the second in the series. We did one, I think it was three weeks ago, talking about the first chapter, which sets it all up. And Jeremiah's called to deliver the word of the Lord, to uproot and tear down, and then later on to build up and plant something new. As the outlines showed on the screen there, these first chapters, the first half of Jeremiah is about judgment. And this is a passage that if you're trying to grow a megachurch, you don't preach on this stuff because this stuff is hard stuff. It's stuff that speaks to brokenness. It speaks to a nation that God called and have gone Uh, off the rails, worshiping other gods, giving false worship of the one true God. And and you wonder, what is going on here? What do we do with these passages in Jeremiah that are so dark and barely any hope? In some of these chapters, there is no hope, in fact. There's a lot of darkness here in terms of God's response to what was going on with the people. As I studied this passage and looked at different... um, different folks that, have, that are much more brilliant than I am and how they have looked at Jeremiah, there were some big themes that come out in these passages of judgment. And we're not going to do every verse and every book in Jeremiah. We're going to do about five or six uh, pieces to kind of show different aspects of unique things in Jeremiah because you would, I would literally kill the church if I went through every chapter in Jeremiah over the course of the next five years. Um, uh, and also Jesus has come, so there's a gospel hope too, but this is before Jesus has come in the Old Testament. And so, so what's going on here? I thought of one story from ancient Rome, a true story, I might add, about as the empire in ancient Rome was struggling and there were factions fighting and things were kind of swirling around the drain before the rise of the emperors, and then even the emperors did some of this as well, um, there was something, a, a phrase that you might have heard in common usage called bread and circuses, bread and circuses. In fact, there was a great restaurant back in our South Dakota where we were serving in South Dakota, I think it's called bread and roses, but bread and circuses, the same idea here. And the idea was that in a time in Rome when there was a lot of uh, foment and political issues were happening that the leaders tried to numb the masses of people who were wrestling with their issues and political misalignment and misfortunes, and and the empire was in a weird, rocky phase. They tried to sort of uh, ameliorate or calm down the people by just making sure that there was a dole or a giving out of bread and also entertainment circuses. And so, and later on, this moves into sort of the gladiatorial fights as well, if you've seen the movie, that kind of thing, but it's actually rooted on some actually history of ancient Greece and Rome. But the powers that be used the bread dole and the circuses to get the people to align to vote before the rise of the emperors or to kind of console them or numb them, as it were, to what was actually happening in the empire and in their lives. As long as they could keep the bread flowing and the entertainment going, there was a numbness that they could sort of work the people into. In Jeremiah's time, the kings of Israel, and now Israel has been invaded and taken over by a foreign enemy, and the kingdom split. The northern kingdoms were called Israel. The southern kingdoms were called Judah. It used to be one kingdom under David and Solomon, and now it is split, multiple bad kings. And the southern kingdom is the last that remains. And Jeremiah is on the scene during this time of three kings. And God raises up Jeremiah to tell them 
that he is coming with judgment because Israel has been unfaithful. They started worshiping other gods. Their kings led them to worship other gods. And many people wanted to just hear that everything is fine, everything's okay. And the kings of Israel at this time were reinforcing this. There were false prophets saying, peace, peace, everything's fine, chill out. It's going to be fine. It's all right. Things will be as they've always been. God's given us this land. He said he'd bless David with an eternal covenant. He said to Moses that this land is ours and this place is ours. Everything's fine. This is just a tempest in a tea kettle. And the kings and the political leaders and the priests and the religious establishment were working to just keep everybody numb to the realities that something was deeply wrong and amiss. And so God raises up Jeremiah to tell, this, tell the people that says, in fact, everything is not okay. There's another story of numbness I want to share as we look at what is going on in these kinds of passages, this prose, this writing, this poetry and narrative, what's going on. Peter Scazzaro tells this retelling of the movie Ordinary People, which is a really old movie. And he talks about this idea of the importance of understanding grief and loss, but he shares this, and I'll read this story to you. This story illustrates sometimes our refusing to wrestle with God in the midst of what might actually be going on and trying to stay sort of above it. In this movie, the, the characters are Calvin and Beth Hutton, Calvin and Beth, and they're living the American dream, or we could translate that into the Canadian dream, but they're living in a Chicago suburb. They have a beautiful home, and their marriage appears perfect on the outside. Calvin is a lawyer. When the Lord was wrestling with me, he called a ministry. My other career might have been lawyer. It was that or bartender, but God called me into ministry, so serving up the word. I'm uh, prosecuting for the Lord. So Calvin is a lawyer and Beth is a homemaker and everything is in place and everything has its like Marie Kondo, like it's all in place. And the beauty of their stability begins to crumble when their oldest teenage son, Buck, drowns in a boating accident. His younger brother, Conrad, who was with him when he drowned, feels responsible for his brother's death. Buck and Conrad, Buck dies. Soon afterward, Conrad attempts suicide and spends four months, four months in a psychiatric hospital. The movie opens a few months after this had happened with Conrad beginning his senior year in high school and he's depressed and trying to control himself, control himself. And neither Conrad nor his parents are able to speak openly of their profound loss and grief. There's sort of that inward that we talk about that saving face, they are doing that fully regarding their loss and grief to everyone else and themselves. Conrad begins to see a psychiatrist twice a week and explores what's going on within his, his inner life. And slowly he allows himself to be honest with his pain, his shame, and his guilt about his brother's death. He was there and he couldn't save his brother in this boating accident, trying to. He admits also when he's talking with this neutral third party, that he has a coldness he's feeling from his mother because Buck was her favorite son. Now, I've told my children they are all my favorite. And I'll say that to you as well sometimes. You're, you're my favorite person at Pilgrim. Just so you know, I say that to everybody. <laughs> I may not always like you, but I've always am for you. <laughs> but he's dealing with this. And his preoccupation of what is the external, what is the outside showing, looking good to others, 
little more of this story. Calvin, the father, feels the increasing tension as Conrad begins to break invisible family rules and express himself and share what's actually going on. He finally attempts to speak honestly with his wife, Beth. And he says this to Beth. He said, wouldn't it be easier if we talked about it in the open, he asks. Beth defends herself. What are we going to talk about, for God's sake? I've already had enough changes in my life. Let's hold on to what we've got. I don't want to change. I don't want any surprises. I want to hold on to what I've got and we'll solve our problems in the privacy of our own home. It's too late, however. Even after a three-week vacation, away from it all, we'll just reset, does not stop the crumbling of the false shell, the pretense, the performing of the true reality of what's going on underneath the family. Calvin finally breaks And begins to speak the truth to Beth. And he says, we are going to our son's funeral. And you're worrying about what I was wearing on my feet. Beth cannot and will not respond. The movie finally ends with Calvin sitting alone in the early morning darkness at the dining room table crying, weeping. Beth enters and asks, what's wrong? He quietly answers back. He says, you're beautiful. And you are unpredictable, but you're so cautious. And Calvin pauses and takes a deep breath. And he said, it would would be all right. It would be all right if there hadn't been any mess. But you can't handle mess. Hear these words. You need everything neat and easy. And I don't know, maybe you can't love anybody. So much Buck. When Buck died, it was as if you buried all your love with him. And I don't understand that. Maybe it wasn't even Buck. Maybe it was just you. But whatever it was, and I don't know who you are and what, you've been play- what we've been playing at, so I was crying because I don't know if I love you anymore and I don't know that I am going to do with that. And in this scene, Beth slowly turns away, walks up the stairs and goes to their bedroom. She breaks down briefly when she's alone, then she regains her composure as she packs her bags and leaves quietly in a taxi and the marriage ends. Beth's refusal to pay attention to her pain and her loss deadened her ability to love well. Something has died within her. Numbness. We see this in our own personal lives sometimes, and maybe you relate to pieces of this story in some ways. Jeremiah is sent to a people And the passion that God has for his people is like that of a marriage. It is like that of a beloved. And that language pops up throughout Jeremiah as well. And yet the people have grown cold and numb towards the one who brought them up out of bondage from Egypt. The one who raised up deliverers for them in a decentralized government with judges. The one who then kowtowed to their wishes to have a king and gave them a king. The one who said, I would make an eternal covenant with this lineage. The one who made covenant with them. And they are numb and they are cold and they worship other gods and they do these things. And to God is a sense of deep loss. How do you awaken numb people? How do you awaken folks that have gotten to that point in their life? What do we do with this? The answer that the Lord gives through Jeremiah is that he raises up men and women, 
puts his spirit on them and calls them to the rough and tough job of speaking of the grief and the loss and the disappointment in the very hope that they might turn. But in this part of Jeremiah, we don't even get to the hope part yet. We just get the darkness. Welcome to church. Glad you're here. It's not like this every Sunday, but it is with Jeremiah. (laughs) There is a numbing novocaine of the false powers around us. And we are like the children of Israel in some ways. There is this phrase... Uh, that Walter Brueggemann uses, uh, Old Testament scholar who I really enjoy, and he says this, that we are all children of something called royal totalism. And I, and I, and I ask you sometimes to answer questions or repeat things. I'm going to ask you to repeat this, royal totalism. Now, we're going to unpack that here. There's just a few main thoughts this morning. Royal totalism, the word of the prophetic voice, overcoming numbness, and grief and loss and how God uses that to bring new life. That's a simple super outline for this morning. This royal totalism. Totalism is what fallen sinful powers do. Their ideology. And in this case, the royal totalism was of the kings and the ruling class of Judah. And so God raised up prophets outside and within that system to critique it, to awaken it, to shake it up, to say, you have assumed that you are God, you have assumed that you have domesticated God nicely in the temple, nicely in the king, nicely in the priestly class, nicely in the rituals that we're adding to Torah, but you have missed the very heart of what it's all about. You think you've domesticated me, and then you go on in sin and do things that break covenant while performing superficial entertainment over here, and they're numb. And the people are numb. How do you awaken that? The royal totalism is something that all societies and all people have to wrestle with. It is the ultimate claim that the powers of the world make on us. The powers of the world, including governments, the king, the party, the culture makers, our ethnic identities, and so forth, put on us. There are things that want to claim the absolute identity for us. They want to deny us the ability to think or imagine beyond them. When the thing wants to call out, when people turn science into a religion, scientism, that's a totalizing system, making a claim on all that is real and all that is. There's bondages of economy. Well, this is the only way the economy can function. Now, I'm not going to solve that, whether it's a liberal or conservative solution, but there's totalism in those camps. or ideologies. Bondages of personal and group sins. Things that claim ultimate ultimate control over us and deny us the ability to think beyond their boundaries are totalizing systems. And I know that's a bit of a deep word, but Jeremiah's dealing with this, with people who had the lip service of the one true God and did the ritual, but at the same time went and acted unjustly towards people struggling in poverty, unjustly in their sins towards one another, what they did with their lives. And so Jeremiah is called on the scene to say, it's not good enough to simply entertain yourselves to numbness. It's not good enough to simply go through the things ritualistically without it truly being rooted in the heart. And so this breaking of the royal totalism is what he is called to do. It leads to numbness. And I might say when it comes to economies and modern governments, we all have deep commitments to royal totalism. Our jobs, our place of living, our immediate friend circles, these things that claim ultimacy in our lives. How do we break out of numbness to feel again? How do we move beyond this? How do we push into this? The good news is God raises up by the Spirit the prophets in the Old Testament to do that. 
And the prophetic in Israel is not first about justice. It's first about reminding and giving voice to the fact that God is at work in the world, that Yahweh is not some mythical figure, but that the God, the one true God over all, is at work and alive, and the prophets give voice to that work. And it awakens them to realize that the king does not have the final word. The economy does not have the final word. My culture that I come from does not have the final word. My family of origin, these do not have final words in our lives. And so God anoints and raises them up and says, Israel, I called you, I formed you, I'm alive and I'm acting. Be awake. The prophetic voice. I'm going with my notes sort of but I have this so internalized that I'm bouncing back and forth, so I apologize to the back while they're trying to figure out where I am. I think they're there, mostly. The first question that the prophets ask is, how can we have enough freedom to imagine and speak about a real newness in our situation? Whether that's ancient Israel, or whether that's you today and what's going on in your life, the word of the Lord comes to you and says, you may have believed a lie that it is all a closed system and that there's only this one way of thinking about your situation. But God comes in and says to you, there's a God at work who is a creative being who can do something new and different. And he calls for loyalty. He calls for love. He calls us to follow him. And now since Jesus has come through, his, through Christ and the grace of Christ... The prophets in ancient Israel engage in what we might call futuring. There's one more quote I want to read to you, and I think this is from Brueggemann as well. He says, our culture, our culture that we live in is so competent to implement almost anything, but to imagine almost nothing. Let me say that again. This is so important to get the prophets. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything. We can get it done. I'm a doer. Let's get it done but to imagine almost nothing. And he goes on and says, imagination, this ought to send a chill down your spine. Imagination is a danger to the royal consciousness or the royal totalism or the party totalism. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophets to keep alive the ministry of imagination To keep on conjuring, well, that's a bit tough for us Baptists, but we'll go with it. He's more congregational. But conjuring, calling up and proposing futures that are alternative or different to the single one the king or the party or the government or the powers of the world wants to urge as the only thinkable one. See, when you gather as a church, I love you, but I don't think some of you fully understand that what we do in worship and word and witness is serving our neighbors, loving outrageously, being people of peace, engaging, but it's also extremely subversive. You're like, I'm sitting on an orange pew at Pilgrim Baptist Church in the middle of a neighborhood in Vancouver where the neighbors are peaceable, in Canada, of all places, we are the vanilla of the vanilla in terms of our emotion. I mean, we, I mean we're, you know, we get our identity from defining it against the U.S. By the way, I'm an immigrant from America, but I'm trying to play, you know, own my identity, both sides. My children are mad at me. They say, oh, you're American. You're being Canadian. But what you're doing right now is subversive. There is a reason why... The state and other 
Political ideologies either want to co-opt the church, as happens a lot in parts of the states, either on the left and the right, or crush the church, as we see in places like right now the Xi in, in China. You see, Trump wants to co-opt it, she wants to crush it. They're actually the same coin, different sides. And from a kingdom of God perspective, we pray for them and we bless them, but we understand, and they both understand intuitively, that there is something subversive about declaring the government and the powers of the world do not have total claim on all that is true and real. In fact, there is a God who owns it all, who rules it all, who has given us freedom that we've misused, and he's caused us to work differently. Now, see, if your identity gets too wrapped up in those total claims of the world, whether it's economics, whether it's how relationships and family of origins, and it doesn't line up with Jesus' life and teaching, it will numb you. It will numb you. The people of Israel, the kingdom, the late kingdom of Judah, were numbed. And so God raises up a prophet to speak to them. Interestingly, in the New Testament, we're all called to speak prophetically. So think about that when you're reading some of this. And so how do we overcome this numbness? The royal consciousness, the totalism, leads people to numbness, especially to numbness about death. And this quote says this, it is the task of the prophetic ministry and imagination to bring people to engage their experiences of suffering to death. I want to rabbit trail just for a second. We'll talk about numbness and then how do we get out of it? Or what's, how does, what is Jeremiah's path out of it? King Solomon is sometimes celebrated. If you're familiar with ancient Israel, there was King Saul and then David and Solomon. That was when the whole kingdom was united, the largest territory under Solomon. And sometimes people look at Solomon and they celebrate him as, as, as sort of the apex of the wealth and prestige. And we hear about his splendor and the glory of his gold and his resources And yet, there's another way to look at Solomon. (laughs) Jesus hints at this, by the way. He said, Solomon, even in all of his glory, wasn't nearly as rayed as the lilies of the field, which are here today and gone tomorrow. And how much more important are you? He downplays Solomon's glory, compares it to a flower which dies, downgrades Solomon, and says, by the way, you're more valuable than both of them. Well, that ought to do something in terms of your trajectory towards Jesus, but... Solomon, when you read in Ecclesiastes, is at the height of his thing, and he is numb. Ecclesiastes is a book of absolute numbness. All is vanity. It doesn't matter. At the height of Solomon's glory, he has lost the heart and the passion of Yahweh and of God speaking to him, and it's actually, when you get to Ecclesiastes, it's a book of absolute numbness. He's desensitized. It's depressing. See, the king at that point had ultimate power. He downplayed the temple. He downplayed the priesthood. He was totalizing, even within the system of Judaism. But the Lord is not silent. He raises up people to speak into our lives, and he raised up Jeremiah now at the very end of the remnant of the kingdom, much less than when Solomon was king. And he wants to break them out of their numbness. Oh, my this is good stuff. I'm enjoying this sermon. Are you, having, are you enjoying this? Are you learning anything this morning? I'm having a good time. I, I just realized it's 15 after, and I have many more things I want to say. Uh, let me share two. When I became a Christian in the church, it was a more expressive uh, church. And one of the things that we were taught by example was the power of mourning and weeping. 
and tears, which in all of our attractional shows and larger church experiences is not something I have seen valued elsewhere other than maybe a superficial story or a story that may jerk your tear. But other than that, in terms of you pressing into a time of identifying with your own brokenness to a point that you actually weep about it. And we may be like Beth in the story here where we've been taught for so much by our culture not to ever emote or let it be very limited. But we were taught about this idea that repentance, the change of direction, needs to also connect with our emotional state, our pathos. It needs to engage with that. And and there's all throughout Scripture this call of we need to be able to move into grief and weeping over the brokenness of our lives whether it's the sinful choices and consequences. We need to be able to move into weeping and mourning over losses, real losses of deaths of loved ones and and our culture of, of the destructiveness of our culture around us. We need to be able to, as believers, enter into this this grief, this sadness. We don't live there, but we need to be able to go there and experience it. Because there's something about grieving and something about entering into pain that is transformative for the believer. Without a death, there is no resurrection. When you become a believer, you are saying, I align my allegiance towards the Lord. I'm turning my allegiance. I'm making a choice. There are habits and patterns of the kingdom of the world that I may repeat because I'm still trying to learn new habits and new practices But now God's grace is working in me, and when I go there, I can weep over my sin. John says this in 1 John. He says, if any one of us says he's without sin, he's a liar, and he makes God a liar. (laughs) Woo, hot stuff. That's New Testament. Here, these guys are committing all these things. There's something about brokenness. There's something about grief. There's something about entering into pain that is transformative if we are willing to let God guide us in it. If you want to break out of numbness, I submit to you, as we will move towards the end in just a second, what Jeremiah is doing here is calling on the people. He's trying to awaken them, and and this takeover has not happened fully yet, but there's a sense that God is trying to get them unstuck, unnumb, thaw them out spiritually. And the God is speaking in chapters 2 and 3, there's all of this wooing, but the wooing has stopped. Now it is the hardcore judgment, and he's trying to awaken something within them to see that they are in such a state that the only way forward is to turn again and to mourn before the Lord their brokenness and say, God, I need you like nothing else. The king can't save me. The economy can't save me. The totalism can't save me. But I know in the end, if my life is in you, all of that can pass away, and I will be secure in your love. Some of the words here, just for a moment. He even says that all of creation is being undone. And Jeremiah is delivering this message in verse 19, and he says, it is such a tough message, I feel in the pit of my stomach. It Literally, it's your bowels, by the way. If you've ever had food poisoning, think about that. I writhe in anguish, my pain of my heart. If you've ever had a heart, pain or pressure is pounding within me. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound. Jeremiah is prophetically seeing this vision of the destruction of all that is that everyone is claiming is fine and will be there forever, the totalism and the lies of the totalism. He speaks this in order to call them out of numbness, to enter into an awakening process. And sometimes we need the truth of the Lord in our lives in a sharp way. Now, Be careful lest you just start 
telling people off in the name of the Lord. You know, you need to be sensitive about that. But as individuals being sensitive to the Holy Spirit and in the pastoral preaching office, sometimes we have to say things that you don't want to hear because it's surgery and it's healing, but it's painful at first. And this is old kind surgery. We don't have anesthesia. We can't put you out for it. (laughs) You have to feel it. Terror on every side versus in this chapter. Oh, there's more, but oh, I need to land the plane. Okay. Are you awake? Say amen. Our souls can be enlarged through grief and loss. And Jeremiah is trying to get them to identify with the grief and loss that's coming in order that they might not have to experience it all. (laughs) And we'll learn that they indeed do experience it all and more. But God then brings new life out of that brokenness. Unless a seed seed falls to the ground and dies, Jesus said, unless that happens, fruit can't be born. But if it happens, much fruit is born. So your body, your family of origin, your marital status, your intellectual capacity, your talents, your gifts, your wealth or lack thereof, your raw material, your personality, some of us are full of all kinds of personality, your time, your work, your relationships, your spiritual understanding, there are limits, there are places in there that are blessed and broken. Owning those losses and entering into that with the Lord can actually reawaken you and take you out of numbness. But performing and hiding will not, and simply entertaining yourself to death will not. That's why we're so concerned about how screens are shaping all of us because they're numbing us and they're doing those dopamine hits and keep us from going deeper in relationship and with the Lord. Something of our humanity is being stolen. So what do we do with all of this? How, what can you take out today? Well, let's say this. After Jeremiah, much later on comes Jesus. And Jesus uses the same language against Jerusalem during his time when the second temple is still standing. This temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and by the invasion that comes at the end of Jeremiah and recorded there. And Jesus says this, O Jerusalem, I would gather you like a mother gathers her chicks. A mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. He speaks the woes and the grief like we talked about last Sunday. The woes were to awaken Not to beat down, but in hope that they hear the word and it awakens them from a numbness and draws them. And then he ends with the pathos of, it is out of my deep heart for you that I'm calling you forward. Matthew 5, 4 says this, only those who embrace the reality of death will receive new life. Those who mourn will be comforted. So we as a community, practically speaking, need to make space for grief in our own lives and in our church. And we evangelicals don't like it because sometimes, and I love the resurrection, but you don't get to the resurrection without the crucifixion. The waters of baptism, we identify with Christ in his death when we go under and his new life when we come up. But you can't come up until you go under first. Until you say to the Lord, I need you. I need to turn from these broken things. And God, give me godly sorrow and repentance over the brokenness in my life. It's not a popular sermon, but there is something powerful about asking the Lord to help you have godly sorrow and repentance over things in your life and the sins of the corporate world around us, meaning powers and the structures that be. We as a community need to make space. Repentance requires an awakening to the consequences of sin. Sin destroys love. Sin breaks relationship. Sin claims that it's going to feel good, but it destroys the thing that sustains love that is better. (laughs) Jesus 
weeps at the ending of his life. Weeping permits newness. So understand that you are the target as we take this out this morning, and I invite the worship team, they can come up as I'm, or who's ever coming up. I want you to hear this this morning. Understand that you are the target of the numbing of the culture. You are a target of the spirit of numbness, an antichrist spirit, the Babylonian spirit, as you, if you will, shows up again and again throughout Scripture, all the way through the book of Revelation. In fact, Babylon becomes the symbol of totalizing powers that eventually God thoroughly judges. He uses and then judges. You're a target of numbing this morning. Look at your neighbor and say, someone's trying to numb you. (laughs) Someone's trying to put you to sleep. (laughs) Because if you're numb, you just sort of go along with the flow. So there's this going on in the culture. I want you to remember that this morning. The other takeouts this morning, understand this, that when we gather in worship and prayer, it's not just about confessing the lordship of Christ. It certainly is that, primarily. But in that confessing of Jesus, you're also provoking new imagination, new thinking about your life, your relationships, our community, and our world. As if God were real and acting in creation, this And I know the church, we want to do internet church at some point, but that doesn't replace the gathering. That's just sort of another doorway to get into this gathering. There's something the Holy Spirit does here in holy imagination that raises up the ability for us to think differently, a new hope, a new future, differently about that thing that you've been so bound to, differently about that relationship, differently about that work situation, differently about the neighborhood and the world around us. There is an imagination process of the Holy Spirit that is in the gathering of the community and in the prayers and the reading of the word, and it calls forth another way of being human in the world. This is vital. There's a reason why governments and powers want to co-opt or crush it, because they have seen that Rome said it would last forever, and many other rulers have said their reign or their idea will last forever, but every one of them has fallen, but the church of Jesus Christ is still on the face of the planet. That's a legacy. Finally, and I mean it for real, finally. (laughs) Stand with me. That's how final this is. If you cannot see beyond this morning, if you are numb today to the realities of the spiritual world that is enmeshed with the material world, The first thing I would ask you is, have you invited Jesus to be the Lord of your life and declared your allegiance to him and to follow him? You see, Jesus was more than a prophet, a priest, a holy man. He made absolute claims on people backwards and forwards, but not the kind of ruler like Herod was or Pilate was, not the kind of rulers like Nebuchadnezzar was or any other power that is, not the kind of power that Trump or Trudeau or she or pick your leader in the earth today is, but a different kind of power, a power underneath, a power that lifts up all, a power that empowers others, that is superabundant, overflowing love. When you declare your allegiance to him, your allegiance to all other things begins to shift and actually gets healthier And you can make a better difference in the world. But if it's out of whack, the anxiety, the numbness will increase. Secondly, if you can't see beyond the numbness, seek to immerse yourself in Scripture. This 
is ancient wisdom. This poetry, this prose in Jeremiah speaks to us today. We read it through Jesus now as believers. We're grafted in, but there's something here that provokes holy imagination. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. Man and woman does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is holy power in this that the world wants to keep you numb and away from. I was sinking deep in the pits in the miry clay. My feet had been stuck, but the Lord reached down with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, and he pulled me up out of the miry clay, and he set me upon a rock in order to stand. The third thing, if you cannot see beyond in, in your relationships, are there areas you need to re-engage and areas you need to release? Buck was having that conversation, or rather, Calvin was having that conversation with Beth here in this story. I, 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 it looks like they waited too long, but you're hearing this word today. You didn't, it's not too late. Do you need to re-engage relationally, emotionally? Do you need to do some spiritual, emotional health work? Do you need to revisit some things in your past with the Lord? Maybe with a trusted friend or a counselor? Where was Jesus in this? Was Jesus going through that with me? These guys experienced real trauma, and we'll get into that in a different sermon. God's working healing. And fourth and finally, grief is a doorway. Are you willing to name things that are losses in your life and grieve them? Grief is a doorway to awaken our emotions in a healthy way and to receive new life and joy and hope. I know I went long. My plane only leaves in two hours. I'm fine. There's another flight later too if I miss it. I'm not worried. But I'm a little bit worried. I'm saying it out loud. But it's not as important what the Lord is doing right now in this room. Right now in this place. Loss, grief. Some of you young people aren't there yet. You go through life, you'll experience that. Your own limitations, embracing them. God works in this. Church revitalization, we are grieving certain things as we change, and we know we've got to do that and become a culture of change, but there's still loss. There's still... Can we as a people embrace that? That's my final takeout today is we need to make space for that and our worship, our word, and our witness. And I'm all for resurrection. You can get in the grief zone and forget that the Lord is in there with you. But for some of you, you may need to spend some time there. There may be some things in your life you need to grieve. And I'm talking to not just women. I'm talking to men. I think some of the most powerful things I remember as a kid in that church was when someone would begin to talk about in the testimony nights. We had lots of services, by the way. We try to do a lot and less services nowadays. But someone would stand up and sometimes rehash their initial testimony or of someone else coming to faith. I remember how I was bound by this or that or the other thing. And how Jesus came into my life and gave me the power to make the changes or the choices I needed to do. Or someone would say, I'm struggling. <laughs> and I'm throwing myself on the grace of Jesus. My mind is dark, and, but for him, I might have lost it. Indeed, I did, but he's bringing me through. Honesty, brokenness, his kindness leads us to repentance and change and trajectory towards Jesus. 
It's not about performing and hiding or entertaining in church. So let me pray and let you, let you sing and get out of here, okay? Is the Lord speaking to somebody today or is it just for me? Am I just preaching to myself? If it's just me, that's fine. I needed the sermon, but anyone else? Amen? Amen. There's freedom in Jesus. So Holy Spirit, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three in one, the one in three, who reveals most fully to us now in Jesus until you come again. We confess that we have been numb sometimes. Maybe some of us are right now. We confess that we have not learned to enter into the deep places of our emotions and grieved well. We confess that like ancient Israel, we look at the totalizing powers and we see them as our Savior. And yet their time is limited. They don't know what time it is, but you do, Lord. And so God, breathe freedom in this house. Be a place of new life that we can receive with joy. As it says elsewhere, weeping remains for a night, but in you, joy comes in the morning. But we've got to enter into that place of weeping and honesty. Make us an authentic community in our home churches, in our gatherings, in our friend circles. Do that work, we pray. We release our lives to you, Lord. We align ourselves to you. We declare our allegiance to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.